Some of you may have seen in the news this past week that China has landed a probe on the moon, and part of uh, that probe's mission was to also set loose a rover uh, there on the far side of the moon, mistakenly oftentimes referred to as the dark side of the moon, is actually just the far side uh, of the moon. Now, this is significant for a lot of reasons, not just the fact that it was China that was able to do this, but also, again, because this is on the far side of the moon. What's going on with that is, is simply this. Um, radio frequency is cut off when you get to that side of the moon. You lose the radio contact, lose all radio frequency. That's been the case with going back to the Apollo missions and everything ever since. Uh, you, you lose that contact with ground control. And that's significant uh, for, for the, this particular mission because for it to succeed, it needs to be, this probe, this lander needs to be able to maintain and sustain communication way back with ground control here on Earth. Being on the far side of the moon, it's cut off from direct communication. So how then, how do you fix this? What, what in the world do you do to get around this problem? Well, the Chinese space agency was smart enough uh, for thinking for with enough forethought, to put a lunar satellite in orbit first so that this lander and this rover can now piggyback that signal and be able to talk to the folks at ground control in, in the Chinese space agency. Okay, that's, that's cool. So uh, that's how they did it. Why'd they do it? Again, why is that a big deal? Why maintain, why do you have to maintain this communication, this, this contact? Back? Because the mission will fail. This probe, this rover, has no chance of succeeding with this mission ultimately unless it's able to maintain communication and contact back with the folks that designed and sent the thing there in the first place. I bring this up simply because there is an obvious lesson sitting right there in front of us, a lesson and a warning for us all. And our tendency towards foolish self-sufficiency, foolish self-dependency, cutting ourselves off as, with, as if we thought we could do it, go it alone, apart from God, His strength, His faithfulness, His grace. And we, are no, we as human beings are no more able to do that than a lander, a probe, is to do anything out there on the far side of the moon. If you have your Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. We are pressing on in this series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's been a little while, uh, been a little while since we were there. I think it was November. Well, you know, holidays, right? It, it happens. Calendar happens. So Matthew 20, it's a, it's a short text. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, that's, that's where we're just going to sink down uh, for a little bit here together this morning. If you're trying to find that, uh, it's the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Again, Matthew 20 is where we are, Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. Hear now the Word of God. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Well, we need to pray. So bow your heads with me if you would. Father, thank you for these few minutes that we have. As has already rightly been said, this is really good to be able to begin not just this week, but this year in this way. Um, on a Sunday morning, assembled together in a service of worship, a central part of that, hearing from you and your word, not from me, and not from anyone else up here on this platform, but we want to hear from you. We want to hear from your inerrant, infallible, inspired word, breathed out in a wondrous, mysterious, miraculous way, such that what we have here in the Gospel of Matthew is no more and no less than what you wanted to be written, coming out somehow through this mortal man, this Matthew, who once the tax collector, now a disciple of Jesus, once was lost, was then found. Once was blind, could now see and wrote such that we could read and hear. But if that circle would be completed, if that circuit would be connected, we need that same Spirit who inspired this Word to illumine our hearts. And so we're praying for His work now, that this dry, crusty, hard ground would be watered, seed would be planted, and there would be much fruit. Would you do that, we pray, even in us. Amen. Well, as I said a minute ago, again, it's been a little while since we were in this, in this study, so oftentimes, you know, when weeks are in between these, these uh, times together, it's helpful just to recap, to maybe take a step back and re remind ourselves, where are we, where have we been? So quickly, let me, let me do that. As was just said in the beginning of the text, the, the, um, the ministry, Jesus' ministry up north in Galilee has come to an end. He and his disciples are now making their way south to Jerusalem. It's right there before you in, in this morning's text. Uh, what you see as you're reading in, in this transition phase of Jesus' ministry, it's something that the theme is, is, has certainly been there throughout, but it's becoming increasingly clear, a recurring theme that you're seeing here, as you look about, roughly about halfway through chapter 19, building on into chapter 20, R roughly around halfway through chapter 19, you have yet another reminder uh, that from Jesus to us that if we're going to come to God, we have to come with the trust, the humility, the heart of a child. It comes up very clearly in, in his words. That then, we, we, we shift from that to this dialogue uh, to the, between Jesus and this, this individual, this young man is often referred to as the rich young ruler, and it becomes quite apparent in that conversation between Jesus and this, this gentleman that 
Despite everything that he thought, and despite whatever it is that we may think, part of the purpose of the law is to expose our hearts. It's, it, the purpose of the law is not to, to save oneself. It's the, the part of the purpose of the law is for those who have been saved to know how to respond to God's grace in their lives. And yet another part of that is to expose our hearts and to drive us to Jesus in the first place. You keep reading past that, and in this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples, he tells this parable, the parable of the vineyard, the workers in the vineyard. And this theme continues and becomes increasingly clear, the absolute dependency that we have upon God's grace. It's just building, it's building. It goes right on into these, those verses that we just read just a moment ago. Now, you, you may or may not know this, but you, you need to know that this is the third of four times in Matthew's gospel that Jesus predicts his death. This is the third time, the third of four times that he's going to do this. And with each time, you have increasing uh, detail and growing clarity as to what it is that's going to happen. It, it builds as with each prediction, with each foretelling of what's coming that, that he gives. It's not just that he's going to die. That was what comes, becomes more apparent in ch chapter 20. It's not just that he's going to die. It's how he's going to die, crucifixion. It's been implied so far, now it's stated explicitly. So not just that he's going to die, but how he's going to die, and the parties that are going to be involved in his death. The Jewish and the Roman authorities with different roles, but sharing in his condemnation and execution. Jesus is clearly pressing pressing some realities upon his disciples then and now. Again, we are absolutely dependent upon God and his grace. Absolutely. Without exception. In no way any equivocation or uh, exception to this at all. Absolutely, we are absolutely, profoundly, deeply, thoroughly dependent on God and His grace. And He would have us to see that as we look at the cross. We are absolutely dependent upon Him and His grace, and He would have us to see that as we look at the cross. I'll put it another way. As we think of this foretelling of his crucifixion that he gives us, the third of the four, what lessons do we learn? What becomes increasingly clear to us besides the fact, the wonder that he can foresee these events and then is able to foretell them as he does? I mean, that's, that's pretty striking in and of itself. But beyond that, what do we learn? At least these three things, and it's there in your outline, these three points, First, simply being the depth of the problem, that is to say, our problem. The depth of the problem. Secondly, the cost of the cure. How far it will have to go, if I can put it that way. And then thirdly, the extent of his love that he would bear such a cost for such as us. Those three things, 
the depth of the problem, the cost of the cure, and the extent of his love. Let's look at these three things in, in turn. Again, we're, we're looking just these few verses here together, Matthew 20, the depth of the problem. That's the first thing we need to consider. How bad is it? How bad is it? Not theoretically, not for those folks, for me, for you, for us. How bad is it? The depth of the problem. You get a sense of that just with the, what is, he's describing here and what he's going to have to undergo. Again, verses 18 through 19. Let's just read them again. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. What do we know? What do we know? If, if you're reading through the Bible and you get up to Matthew, you started with Genesis, you're making your way on forward, and you come to Matthew. What then do you know in terms of God and his people, the sober history of Israel? What do you know? What do you know? You know that's a story, it's a tale of great heroes and catastrophic failure such that it has a way, and if you're, you're, you're reading it or if you're living it, as they were, it has a way, had a way of stirring up, of poking, prodding, provoking, longing for the greater hero to come, the one to whom that was all pointing and, and about. That's what some, so much of that history is about, that sober history. Beyond that, if you think in terms of just the 10,000 feet up and, and the images, the sober images of Israel and her history, these two, many others we could talk about, just, just highlighting these two, one being time and again falling into idolatry. That is to say, trusting and relying upon, looking to anything, anyone before and besides the living God himself. A theme of idolatry coming again and again and again and again all through their history. And not just that, but, but spiritual adultery. And this comes up particularly with the, with the prophets. That is to say, a betrayal of this relationship between God and his people by his people. Those themes of idolatry and adultery and the sober history, the sober tale. Something's wrong. You get that? Something's wrong. This is not a happy story. Something is desperately wrong. Okay, that's what we know. What then do we see when we come to Matthew and Jesus' ministry and what it is that he is saying is going on here? Well, we see such things just right here. It's implied Jewish hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of his people. That is to say, such a stubborn concern for ceremony, such settled conformity to, to, to tradition, that they were not just willing, but gladly so to jettison, to forego, to forget the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, whatever it took to maintain the ceremonies and the, and the traditions. 
the hypocrisy of his people. That conflated and combined with Roman cruelty. You may not know this, but the Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they were pretty good at perfecting it from an historical standpoint. Now, you know, medical professionals today would say it's not actually the worst way to die, but back then they thought it was. And get this, that's why the Romans chose it as a means of execution, because they thought it was the worst way to put someone to death. So you have the Jewish hypocrisy and Roman cruelty. That's what is here on the scene. Truly, we can say Jerusalem, the holy city, is occupied territory in the worst sort of way. Or if I can put it this way, everything, that hypocrisy and cruelty, everything that led to Jesus' death made it necessary. Do you see that? Because what you see going on here in the events that Jesus that's going to lead to his death, it's not just a, a thing, a flash in the pan news event. It was a reflection of everything that's wrong in the human heart. The hypocrisy and the cruelty. Everything that led to his death is what made his death necessary. And those things that led to that and made it necessary cut right through as a dark stripe my heart and yours. With no exception, no exception whatsoever, wherever we look, wherever we turn, despite our best efforts to deny that, despite our best efforts to suppress the evidence. Let me give you an example. I won't pretend to know the motives here. I, we, we do know the action, and that is on the part of some hymnal editors in recent years to change, alter, improve the wording of John Newton's Amazing Grace. You may have heard it, the song. The line goes like this, the refined version. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone like me. Did you catch the change? Did you catch the alteration there? Now, it fits the rhythm. It fits the cadence. There's no violation there. But it's an utter... It's, it's a denial of our wretchedness. It's an unwillingness to even speak those words. It's a lie. It's a withholding of truth. That's not just something him editors do. We do that. We do that. Suppressing the evidence, denying the dark stripe within. Can it be that bad? Well, I don't know. Jesus seems to think so. He went to a cross because of that. So apparently it is. 
The cross shows us the depth of the problem, the extent of our dependency on God's grace. That's the first thing. It's why, moving to the second point, it's why Jesus begins in the way that he does in verse 18. I don't know if you caught this. The ESV puts it this way, see. I think maybe the NIV does too. The older, other translations, older translations put it a different way. Behold. You notice he doesn't just say, um, we're going on up. He says, see, or behold, whatever your preference there in the translation. Why? There's a sense of emphasis there. Pay attention. Listen. Be aware. Behold. Behold. Take heed. Take hold. Don't miss this. We're going to Jerusalem the depth, because of the depth of the problem and the cost of the cure. Behold. Behold. Now, if you were there on the scene, what would you have seen? Now, at the surface level you would certainly have been able to ascertain physical agony. And what Jesus is foretelling is coming. You would have been able to ascertain clearly, dreadfully, horrifically, physical agony. It's spoken to right here in these few verses. He speaks of the flogging. I don't, we don't have time to get into the technique, and it's horrible. Very well thought out and intentional, the brutality there. Not just that, but, but of course, he also speaks to the crucifixion. Again, we mentioned that already. Again, we could talk about the science and the horror and the brutality with that as, as well. Just uh, torturous. A, that doesn't even begin to... I don't have enough words. Torturous death is being described here. So, so we're, you can certainly see on the surface physical agony, but not just that, that but, but psychological anguish. As well, as Jesus speaks of the fact that he will be mocked. Now, do you get that? Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, whose birth we just celebrated. Remember the baby in the manger? Grows up to be the one is being spoken of here, doing the speaking and being spoken of here, will be mocked, meaning he will be set aside and jeered, made fun of publicly. And delivered over twice. Uh, Jesus uses that term, delivered over, handed over. It has a sense of betrayal. Twice. In these, two ver in these few verses here, that, 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 that phrase is used to emphasize, right? Twice in that compact space. To emphasize the pain, the agony of what he is experiencing or going to experience. Okay, that's on the surface. But if you drill down even beneath all that, it's actually worse. It's worse than all. That is tip of iceberg. That, those are earthly, horizontal reflections of what's in a, in a deeper sense what's really going on here. The ultimate estrangement. The ultimate alienation. The ultimate separation of relationship. That's what Jesus is experiencing. The Son of God. The Son of Man. The Eternal Son. Jesus, the Christ, what is it relationally that is the only thing that he has known, if I can use this term, for eternity past with his father? Harmonious intimacy of relationship. That's all he's known. And that is utterly smashed at the cross. 
He goes through hell. Harmony gives way to hell. That explains so much when you think in terms on, on the night before his betrayal. His cries there in Gethsemane. The anguish that he is clearly showing, the sorrow that the witness could see he was crushed by, his threefold prayer, Lord, if it be your will, find another way, sweating so heavily, described as being like drops of blood, because he could see better than anybody what was coming. It explains why he cries what he does. Matthew 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had. He had. The ultimate estrangement, the alienation. Look, just weeks ago, in the course of our uh, Advent celebration. I, I trust in some of your own personal reading. Matthew 1.21, right? Turn back, just a few, same book, same book, Matthew, but Matthew 1, verse, uh, starting in verse 20. This is the, the angel coming to Joseph and explaining to him what's really going on, so don't do what you think you need to do, because here's what you really need to do. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 20. And as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, how's that going to happen? It's one thing to read that in the birth narrative and keep it at a sentimental, sappy level. But it's a completely other thing to reckon with the answer to the question, how will he save his people from their sins? Matthew 20 gives us a clue. Again, verses 18 and 19. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus bore a cost that we could not pay. He bore a burden that we could not bear. But it has been paid and it has been borne. Hear that. Past tense. It has been paid and it has been borne. Everything he suffered, we deserved. But everything we deserved, he suffered. He drained the cup 
of God's wrath dry. Look in it. You will see no moisture in that cup. He drained it utterly dry, which means, fellow believers, child of God, follower of Jesus, this very moment in time and space, you are utterly forgiven and free. Now. And if here this morning, that's not where you are, know that that offer is right on the table for you too to be forgiven and free in this moment and time and space. You don't have to walk out of here the way you came in, wondering, worried, burdened. We are absolutely dependent upon God and His grace. The cross shows us how high that cost is and that it is paid. That takes us to the third point, the extent of His love. Such is His love that He would pay such a cost for such as us. Such is His love that He would pay such a cost for such as us. I want to just look at two short places, two short verses, two short texts uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul, just a few years later after these events take place that Jesus is speaking of here. Uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. The extent of God's love, Paul reflecting on the events that from an historical standpoint are being recorded for us in the gospel. Paul, for instance, the cross is a clear demonstration of God's love. A clear demonstration of God's love. It could not be any clear. It could not be made any clear. For instance, Romans 5, verse 8. This is the first of the two places. Romans 5, verse 8. What, is, what do we see? But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God shows His love for us in that while we we're still sinners. Christ died for us. What else could he do? Right? What else could he do that hasn't been done? What else do you want? As far as him showing his love, demonstrating his love, proving his love to us. What else do we want, really? We have to ask ourselves that question. Is, is, is somehow that not enough? If we're looking for something else, we're saying that's not enough. What would be enough? The cross is a demonstration of his love. It is also a guarantee. So if you want to think in terms of, of a past orientation, the cross is a demonstration of his love. If you want a future orientation, like I get it as far as last week he loved me, but what about this week? We have a guarantee yet of his love as well. Just skipping a few pages further in the book of Romans. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. You see the argument that Paul is making here, from greater to lesser. If he would do that, he will surely do this. If he will do the greater, then surely he will do the lesser. Clearly inferred, by the way, in this, you may, I don't know if you notice, it's harder to see in the English. Um, remember back, I mentioned this earlier, in Matthew 20, twice in those three verses that we've been looking at, uh, Jesus says that he will be delivered over, right, twice in there. Paul uses the same word in Matthew 8. It's just translated a different way, and it's translated give over or give up. Same word. So when you ask yourself in that, in that on the ground, on the scene, and you're, you're, we're asking ourselves, so who delivered Jesus up? Well, I mean, you could say from Matthew 20, you could say, well, Judas delivered him over to the, to the Jewish authorities, and then the Jewish authorities delivered him over to the Romans. And that's true. That's true. But Paul is showing us behind that, ultimately, it was the Father who gave over the Son. Such is the extent of his love that he would bear such a cost for such as us. Such is the extent of his love that he would bear such a cost for such as us. Now, where do we, what do we do with that? Practically speaking, what do we do with this? Last week, we, we just teased up, brushed up against the, 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 the topic of suffering. And, and we mentioned how suffering has this nasty, tenacious way, whatever form you're thinking of, whether you're in the center of the storm or you're just feeling the effects of what someone you care for is undergoing, but suffering has this nasty, tenacious, pesky way of exposing our hearts and stripping us bare and forcing us to see oftentimes that despite whatever else we thought, we were actually in it for what we could get out of it as far as a, a relationship, a walk with God. We're far more interested in what He can give us than with what than him he himself far more interested and far more treasuring in our hearts the gifts of the giver than the giver himself suffering has a way of exposing that but there's something else a lot to be said but just just for time's sake just say this as we think about the cross and the extent of God's love for you and for me now We may not know what the purpose or the reason is for what it is that we went through, are going through now, or will go through. We may not know the purpose. We may not know the reason. I, clearly there is. God always operates with a purpose, with a reason, with a plan. But we may not know what that is. Here's what we can know. Because of the cross, it is never because he doesn't love you. The cross is proof 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that whatever the purpose, whatever the reason, whatever the explanation is behind whatever it is that we're undergoing and suffering through, it cannot be. He does not love you. The cross shows the extent of his love. Let me end with this. Words from another song that we sing from time to time here. In Christ alone. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here. In the love of Christ, I stand. My friends, it is only through the finished work of Jesus that we can sing those words. And those are really good words. <laughs> really good words. And it is only through the finished work of Christ that we can say that they are true. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. We are absolutely dependent upon God's grace. He would have us see that as we look to the cross. Let's pray. What a way to start this new year. We are thankful. Thankful for this reminder of this truly good news. We ask that you'd help us here. There is much that obstructs this message, and we ask that whatever that be within our hearts and minds this morning, that you would clear the path to help us here. If it be, we just didn't know. We just hadn't heard. We just needed that. We needed the information. May it be. If it be that we have bought into half-truths that are confusing and muddling uh, the, the, the reality of these things, then we ask that you would clear the air. If it be pride, if it be foolish, arrogant presumption down deep within the recesses of our hearts that somehow thinks that we don't need this, that this is for other people, then again, we ask that you clear the way. We ask, we plead with you, O oh Father, to help us hear and live out of these things in every way, in every arena of our lives. Nothing untouched, nothing hidden, all laid bare before you and this good news. We thank you again for the way that, that we've been able to start this week, start this day, start this year. May we not forget. Thank you now for the supper, the sacrament that we can celebrate together. May it be a serious celebration and a joyful moment of serious reflection. Pray in your name. Amen.